0: God who gave us sugar cane and pineapples and gave us the potluck. Be with us now. Open our eyes, ears, open our stomachs. Speak to us today as we learn how to settle in your good creation. Christ's name, amen. Next slide. We've been talking through this Easter season about new creation, particularly the space where heaven meets earth. Often when we think about the Jesus story, it seems like it has less and less to do with this earth, with like the sort of dirty, grimy, intestinal side of of living, and, and always has something to say to the more spiritual, uplifting, detached version of reality. And we continually have been trying to put these two worlds together to say that what God is doing in Christ is what God has always been doing in the scriptures, which is bringing the realm of God, which we call heaven, to meet the realm of humanity and creation, which we would maybe call earth or the world. That is... Been the movement for all of these teachings, but we've often been flying at like 10,000 feet. We're, we're looking at these really large images and tracing them out and, and this grand idea that in Christ's resurrection, there's something we would call new creation that's beginning, that God is recreating the world in newness, a new garden, a new humanity, a new chance, all of those sort of things. And that feels really exciting, but also really ephemeral. It kind of is hard to hold on to. So today what we're going to do is rather than fly at 10,000 feet, we're going to like be right here, just inches from our own life. If it was the macro before, now we're going to look at at the micro world of the Bible. So that's where we're heading today. And the way that we're going to get at that is by talking about food. Next slide. So this is like this, I was listening to, to Pastor Colin read the scripture and it, made me realize this could also be a sermon about ghosts which would be a really fun sermon because (laughs) there's this presupposition Jesus says like I'm not a ghost look at me I also am super hungry and ghosts don't eat I did not know this but apparently it's true Jesus does not dispute that there are ghosts just says I'm not one of them that's another sermon he talks about eating There is this thing, apparently when you die and then you are raised, you are hungry. Have you noticed this? John's gospel picks it up. Luke's gospel picks it up. Jesus is hungry when he is raised from the dead. Three days without eating, but I don't know what it was up to. But apparently whatever activity was taking place in the grave, it created sort of hunger pains. Same thing happens to Lazarus. If you look at the story of Lazarus who's raised in John's gospel, like the very next scene is Lazarus at the dinner table reclining for a meal. People who used to be dead and who are now not dead are quite hungry. So we're going to talk about food today. Next slide. This phrase bothered me and has bothered me, that Jesus gets hungry. There are all kinds of different ways that we could get at the central scandal of the incarnation. Incarnation is simply the language we use for God taking on flesh and blood in the person of Christ. And there are lots of ways we could talk about what it means for the divine to enter into this realm. Jesus sleeps. That's a strange idea. Jesus Needs, cries, aches, Jesus can die. All of these are signs of the incarnation. And it is always scandalous. The idea of a God who is hungry or thirsty. And not just that. This isn't just Jesus the man. This is Jesus the God-man. And it isn't just Jesus before death and resurrection. Next slide. This is post-resurrection Jesus. So whatever happens in that Easter moment long ago, eating and drinking, that very, very regular mundane thing that we all do every day, it it still has something to do with the resurrected life. Jesus has these hunger pains. and, And part of this is to prove that he is really here. I'm hungry. Do you guys have anything to eat? And they give him some boiled fish. Seen before that, Jesus meets with some friends who don't recognize him and feeds them breaks bread and they have a meal together another gospel he cooks breakfast on the shore there's all of this eating that happens and we should ask why what are we supposed to learn from this what does it mean now i have not heard a lot of sermons on the spirituality of eating and i have some guesses as to why I've actually heard a lot of sermons about the spiritual ethics of sexuality, for instance, and purity. Because there, we've always, for a long time now, the Western church has been deeply obsessed with what we do with our bodies, how our bodies interact with other bodies, and making sure we really understand the boundaries between what is in and what is out of bounds. And this has been this like central obsession for religion for a while now. And nobody ever talks about food. Who has heard a sermon or preacher talk about the ethics of sex? Hands, let's see. Who has heard set through a teaching or a sermon about the ethics of food? Heyo! Corey, you don't count. You've heard some of this before. <laughs> Part of the reason that we're even talking about this week after week uh, is because we live within this uh, this split existence that we've been calling dualism or the dual mind or needing to always put everything in good and bad and light and dark categories. And how for the longest time, all of church history, we have named this instinct that we have heresy. Heresy is just simply like what is out of bounds for uh, beliefs and practice. I'll say it again just so that we're all on the same page. It is felt like the goal of the Christian life, as I have received it and many of you have received it, is that we might believe the right set of things so that God might see us fit to be saved from damnation so that our souls can get out of here at death and make it up to heaven. Heaven then becomes this sort of disembodied state where our spirits sort of float around and sing all of the time. Even if you don't like singing, it's still what heaven apparently is going to be like. And that's the the deal. Like that was all that I really received growing up. This was the point of the Jesus thing, was to believe the right set of things so that when you die, your soul is saved, is kept safe. But that is like a very split apart version of reality, that there's this realm called heaven, and what we're trying to do is escape this realm called earth so that we can get out. The uh, way that we talked about it, next slide, is the uh, super secret knowledge club. That is my language for what would have been called something like Gnosticism or or Marcionism at the time. Really fun words for heresies. But there is this thing called the Super Secret Knowledge Club. And they really believed in this idea of a dual reality, that spirit is really good, that whatever... God is made of whatever heaven is made of that spiritual reality is the highest and then all of the material flesh and blood sweat and hunger pains like that is all pretty bad and so we are spirits trapped in bodies that's sort of the way that they would have understood the world and that they have the super secret knowledge about this kind of world Now, you have to sort of not read the Bible to get to this perspective or you have to say that the Bible is telling us all kind of things that Jesus is not. So, for instance, next slide, one of the most important things to sustain a really dangerous version of belief and practice is to make sure that we don't know all of the texts. That the Ark of Scripture is obscured. And so this is what those folks did, the Super Secret Knowledge Club. They would say that there is the New Testament or this new revelation. And that is all of the good stuff. That's like loving Jesus and gracious God and and saving. And all of the light is right here. And then they would look at the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. They would say this, this is the old revelation. And that version of God is a really dangerous God. The God of Jesus and the God of the Jewish people, those are two different gods. Right? One of them is very, very angry, it would seem. If you go back and you read the Old Testament, there's like all of this war language and all of this jealous language, and that God has always got a frowny face on. And then the Jesus God over here is all something else, like rainbows and puppies. You have to ignore or cut out a lot of the Bible to get to this perspective. And the fact that we live with this perspective, it's sort of the one that is really foundational to the way a lot of us were raised. Uh, it may mean that we haven't been reading our whole Bible. Here we're trying to read the whole arc of Scripture. Partly too because Jesus or Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament letters... The Hebrew scriptures were, were their Bible. Like that was the thing. They didn't have a New Testament at the time. So somehow they would read that and see in that God, see in that the Jesus story. So we need to read carefully together as well. Okay. There's a, a professor who used to teach at Notre Dame uh, in Jewish studies, had this phrase that uh, any God who is not interested in our pots and pans and genitals is not interesting. So much of the time when we show up, these are not the things we want to talk about. We would much rather talk about things that are not so easily quantified or seen or practiced. But God... Revealed in scripture is deeply, deeply concerned with these very mundane parts of our life. In fact, when we show up in worship, it is not to forget about this part of our life, but it is to ground it in a larger story. So that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to do it by looking at the book of Leviticus because it's one of my favorite books and it's super weird. And my guess is we haven't probably taught about it a lot. And so we're going to do some of that today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Leviticus. Let me tell you a little bit about Leviticus. It is the middle book of what we would call the Torah or the law or the five books of Moses. So the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, we often, when we read the Old Testament, like Genesis, we really know. And Exodus, you have to know because I mention it every single Sunday. Numbers, kind of. And Deuteronomy is just the retelling of the law, the law again. Leviticus holds a place of deep importance for the Jewish faith. And it's one of these, yeah, the, the Tanakh is what they would call their entire scripture canon. Now... Christians often don't think a lot about the book of Leviticus because it feels really arcane, old school. We don't really have to think about that because what Jesus has done is done away with the law and regulations of Moses and has given us a new covenant. And, and part of the misunderstanding of that is that we we get to just sort of like cut it out. And that would be really nice because then our Bibles would be the weight of those Gideon Bibles in the hotel rooms and not this big old thing with all this really confusing ancient stories in it. But this is what we have and this is what we're going to read together. In fact, though, after this teaching focus on new creation and heaven meets earth, we're going to talk about uh, the Sermon on the Mount This central teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew's gospel. Math or Jesus in this story is taking the tradition, especially Leviticus, and is reinterpreting it, is giving it back to the church. So we should know where all of this comes from. So if you've got a Bible, you could turn to Leviticus. You can turn to chapter, let's do nineteen. You could also turn to chapter eleven, and we might do that as well. Next slide. Chapter 19, just like the entire book of Leviticus, is this set of commandments, prohibitions, things you can do, things you can't do, along every little minute area of life. God is obsessive. There's probably good reasons why we never think about this. It's it's quite confusing. Let me read a little bit for you. The Lord speaks to Moses and says to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. By the way, that's a, that's a new idea in religion. That we are called to holiness, to be like God. That is not the way that ancient peoples would have thought about religion. Religion was supposed to be we are supposed to appease the gods because they are holy. And we are not. That's the whole point. We are servants to the gods. But in this understanding of religion, that we are given as an inheritance the Lord calls us to holiness. Not just the priests, not just the preacher, not just the deacons. Calls all people to be holy as God is holy. In that language of that you will be a kingdom of priests one to another, it lives inside of this reality. You are to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then we're going to talk about what holiness is. Holiness seems to be all the little things. You shall honor your parents is the first thing that they talk about. I'm the Lord your God. Don't make an idol or cast images for yourself. Then dives into sacrifices. When you offer a sacrifice of well-being, offer it in such a way that it's acceptable in your ha- your behalf. It shall be eaten on the same day you offer it. Or on the next day, And anything left over until the third day shall be consumed by fire. If it's eaten at all on the third day, it's an abomination that will not be acceptable. To all who eat it, shall be subject to punishment because they have profaned what is holy to the Lord and any such person shall be cut off from the people. Already, most of you are checking out because this does not sound like it involves you. Right? When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip the vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Can you feel the way that God's lordship claim over our lives means that we have practices that ground us as a community. That's what is being received here. You were to honor your elders. You're not to have idols. Also, when you go to your fields, you're supposed to leave some on the edges. Don't pick every grape. And pull every stalk. Because after you will come the poor among you who will then circle the field and have enough left over. There is something about economy in here. If we keep reading, there's something about politics in here. This is all of the stuff of life. How we should live. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't deal falsely. You shouldn't lie to one another. It sounds like the Ten Commandments. Don't swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of God. Don't defraud your neighbor. Don't steal. All of these things get caught up in here. Cursing, manager ethics, court ethics, mixtures, whether it's thread or whether it's animals. Sex, always sex in these kind of conversations. What about fruit trees? That seems to be something they're concerned about. Bloody meals. This is like all of the stuff. Familial prostitution. You should always make sure to understand the prohibitions about familial prostitution. Mediums, sorcerers, elders, immigrants. Quotidian Righteousness. The quotidian is this language about the everyday, the common. When you ask people to like name a religious experience that they've had, tell me about a time when you felt really close to God. Nine out of 10 times the answers are, well, it was when I was at this like worship conference and the music was really good and the lights and the fog was just right. And like, God really had me, or it was this mountaintop experience and I had to climb really had to get there and I was all by myself and I'd been praying the whole way up and reading scripture and I arrived at the mountaintop and that's where I saw God. But we spend most of our lives doing things like laundry and dishes and cooking meals and speaking to our family or our children or or interacting with folks at work. And, And if most of our lives are lived in places that we have a hard time naming as God's spaces, then our lives take on the fragmentation we are working so hard against. So what if we just talk about eating as one place where if we pay close attention, we might discover something about God we did not know before? at least three times a day unless you're a hobbit and then you get like five meals a day if the Lord of the Rings is correct. But lots of times a day we sit down with a meal or we stand or eat in the train with a meal and we have an opportunity to pay attention. Next slide. Often it would seem that our soul has nothing to do with our stomach. Our stomach, our gut, is a place of craving. It's a place of desire. So many times that craving and desire leads us astray. So often when you think about food in church, maybe the only way we think about it spiritually is in the practice of fasting of not eating that's when you're really spiritual is when you're abstaining from the thing because the eating with like abandon is this pleasurable act and pleasure might lead to lust and gluttony and then it's just like a slippery slope before all of a sudden you're just a hedonist but I want to make this contention next slide God gets to us through our gut through our stomach, through our cravings. Aquinas would say it this way, the great Catholic theologian. God communicates to us in a way that is fitting for us. So of course God shows up in human form because that is quite fitting. And of course God has something to say about our eating practices because that is fitting for the life that we are living Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. The only reason that makes sense is because God has given us hunger and thirst as a, as a directional sign for our life. In the book of Leviticus, this really interesting thing happens where there are all of these rules and laws and commandments that are unique to the clergy, to the really important God people, the priestly class, when you offer sacrifices, when you work in the tabernacle or in the temple realm, the kind of clothes you wear. This is not priest-appropriate. That seems to be like an obsessive concern for the writer of the book of Leviticus. But then immediately, all the time, it switches like whiplash. You'll be talking about the temple or the tabernacle or the holy place. And then all of a sudden, you're talking about your your living room or your kitchen table or the stove or the bedroom. And it's, it's hard sometimes to distinguish. And we like to distinguish and put things into categories. But the writer of Leviticus is stacking things in meaning. So what happens... In the sacred holy spaces, we would say that like this feels a lot like a sacred and a holy space. This does not look like my kitchen in here. And I don't think it looks like your kitchen either. But what happens in here is analogous to what happens at home. The reason that the book of Leviticus is written like it is, is it's saying one thing over and over again, which is that everything belongs to God. That there is no sphere of life that we would call secular. I really hate that term, secular. What kind of music do you listen to? I listen to Christian music, not secular music. That there is no secular realm. There is just life. There is just reality. And it is us either paying attention to God's activity in all spaces or it is us being dumb to God's presence in those spaces. Eating It's foundational and primal, so of course God has something to say in that realm. And of course we might access something we would call grace or even like salvation in the act of eating. Now immediately you might be thinking about the once a month communion that we have, and that would be a good place for your mind to go right now. Also your mind should definitely go to the potluck we're going to have after church because that is also a sacred act. There's this, this phrase that applies to today which is that with the right kind of awareness every table is an altar. You could also say like every home is a sanctuary where two or more are gathered, there I am as well. All of that, it all belongs. This is not a sermon today about gluttony or about the broken relationship we have with food, we could preach those sermons, and one day we will. There are a lot of diet books out there, there are a lot of Christian diet books out there, and a lot of secular diet books out there. If they say anything, they say that we are divorced from this common practice. We have not found a way to integrate it into God's bigger story. So we have this very broken and fragmented relationship with eating. Gluttony and starvation seem to be the orders of the day. Food itself is either seen as utility or seen as dangerous. How much cake did you eat last night? You ate that much cake last night? That can't be good for you. Or food is fuel might be the other way we've thought about food before. It's just a utility to get the work done. But food, it speaks primarily of relationships. Relationships of covenant. And if what we keep saying about sin is true, that sin is that which fragments us from primary relationships, at least from relationship to God, to one another, to the land or to creation and even divorces us from ourselves. You can locate that fragmentation inside of our eating habits, all of them. We don't know where our food comes from. We have no, I have no idea where my food comes from, except for maybe the people who cooked it today, which is really at least a good start for the thing. Often food just shows up unbeknownst to me. I am deeply divorced from food production cycles. We all are as urban folks. Maybe not when you go back to Montana, there might be some folks who've clued in a little bit more when i go back to mississippi when i was a kid there was a garden in the backyard and we actually ate a lot from that garden but i am divorced in my eating habits from creation eating alone i remember in college before i knew people the like sitting in the cafeteria and there was no one else to sit with and you ate your meal by yourself and it was like the worst thing imaginable uh for like you know a privileged white guy who got to go to college <laughs> This loneliness of eating without company. Or somebody who has an eating disorder. Maybe somebody who's bulimic and purges what they eat. This sort of central divorce from their own bodily existence. That food is always a place of conflict and not a place of healing. So of course, God wants us to pay attention to our eating habits. Next slide. This is one of the words you just need to learn from the Hebrew scriptures. It's the word nefesh. It means soul. The beauty of the Hebrew language is that so many of these complex emotional sort of big, grand ideas like the soul, they get held in very intimate ways, in very bodily ways. So like when the Hebrew Bible talks about anger, it talks about your face being flushed because that's what it feels like to be angry. Or when it talks about strength, it talks about like an outstretched arm or your hand because that seems to be where strength might emanate from. When it talks about your soul, it uses the language of your throat. The word nefesh means soul, but it also means the place where you thirst. So when the psalmist says, my soul pants for you, like a deer pants for water, that is the language of your throat. Now, when we think of soul in this way, it radically changes the way we exist in our bodies. If our souls are trapped inside our bodies, which is the dualistic way of understanding reality, then the goal is to free them but if our souls are also our bodies and if those very bodily instincts of hunger and thirst might lead us to God like, like that thirst leads the deer to water then we're getting closer to the thing. So here's all I want to say today. There's 10 other versions of this teaching that have a lot more guilt inside of them, but that is not the place to start. To eat with awareness is to open yourself up to the grace that God is offering in the feeding. To pay attention to your eating practice, to the food in front of you, to the drink in front of you, to the people who provided it for you, who cooked it, who picked it, is to Get yourself tied up in the relationship of its production, of its cultivation, of its gift that it shows up on the table. And to eat with purpose and intentionality is a sacred act. The way that we come to communion, and I watch you all because I am the privilege of standing up here often and handing you the body and blood, the bread and the cup. I watch how careful you are with it, how attentive you are to it, respectful, respectful. What would it look like to eat every meal with that kind of intention? To hold all offerings like you hold the bread of Christ. What would that change about us? About the pace with which we eat? About our awareness of where it comes from? About who doesn't have enough to eat? Next slide. This line from Wendell Berry is getting close to it. To live, we must daily break the body and shed the blood of creation. When we do this knowingly, lovingly, skillfully, reverently, it's a sacrament. When we do it ignorantly, greedily, clumsily, destructively, it is a desecration. In such a desecration, we condemn ourselves to spiritual and moral loneliness and others to want. That's the whole thing right there. He talks in another quote about how there are no unsacred places. It's another way of saying there's not like a secular world over here. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred and desecrated places. Every time we sit down together and break bread or slurp ramen, every time we do so with care and attention, with gratitude, the moment becomes sacramental, becomes a means and delivery of grace. Every time we eat attentively, it has the possibility of restoring connections that have been severed. Every time we sit down carelessly, it is the potential to destroy or desecrate a sacred space God has given us. Next slide. There it is. Go back one more. Very first act of eating in the scriptures sends the story off the tracks. Adam and Eve in the garden, they have this sense of hunger that is aimed in the wrong direction and they take and they eat and it sends the story of creation off the tracks. And you can follow this eating pattern as it descends and descends. Even until the flood and violence and God makes space for our violence and says, fine, you don't just eat plants. You can also eat some animals, but not too many and not all of them. And you still have to respect life, but you seem to be bent on violence. So I will make a concession, God says, within your eating practice. Jesus eats his entire way through the Gospels. And the last thing that happens before death is a meal. This reconstituting of the people. It's the same meal that is instituted when the people leave Egypt in freedom. Before they leave, they stop and they eat. If you read the book of Exodus, it speeds up. It's like on fast forward until it gets to the chapter right before they leave and the narrative slows down and like for a whole chapter, it details the meal. With intention and with purpose. If you keep taking The story God has been telling us. You end up at food always. The kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God like? Well, it's like a party. It's like a banquet. It's like carnival or Mardi Gras. There's enough food. There's really good wine. And there's all kinds of fatty meats. It is a great spread. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And everybody is invited. Next slide. I want to tell you a story about a time when our family's eating habits drastically changed. Because some of you are sitting out here right now going, that's all well and good, John Jay, but I have a very complicated relationship with food. Food is always a contested area in my life, you might be saying. I can't eat this, this, or this, and I don't know why, so what am I supposed to do when I sit down at the table with friends? It's always a point of conflict and complexity. Here's what happened in our family. We, uh, at some point, oh, five or six years ago, um, Corey had been getting, like, fatigued, and so much preferred to think about sort of a, an integrated understanding of her body and her health, And turned out that a lot of the foods that she had been eating were causing all kinds of symptoms inside of her. And so she went on this like really restrictive diet. What was it called? A food elimination diet? Which is terrible. And so I did not have said health issues, but I wanted to stay married through the process. And so I decided, like we decided together, we're just going to eat the same stuff. And so for a season, one of the things we couldn't have was salsa. And salsa is the communal food in our house. Like if anybody's feeling bad when Judah gets home from school and he's got a headache, he's like, can I just have some chips and salsa and I'm going to be fine. And it always works better than Tylenol, chips and salsa. But we couldn't have chips and salsa. We couldn't have coffee. We can have all kinds of things as you were limiting your your food. And, And I, for a while, thought about this as just like pure loss, right? Just pure loss. I love Gumbo, And I can't have gumbo because half the stuff in there you couldn't eat at the time. And so there was this sense that the table was not a place of grace or sacred. It was a place of conflict and confusion. Slowly, though, we could eat a certain number of things. And we ate with insane attention to detail. We knew where the food came from. We gave intense thanks for its arrival because it was like the only thing we could eat for that season. I miss that. We've now eat all kinds of stuff again and is a part of our life, but I eat with all kinds of carelessness now in a way that I didn't when we were in that space of paying attention. I'm asking you to pay attention to your table manners. To receive it as a gift all the time. Next slide. It could be said as simply as the place where heaven and earth meet might in fact be your stomach. And I don't just mean like your spiritual hunger for righteousness. right. I mean your actual hunger. I mean the people who live on the streets actual hunger. Provided. It makes me think, Zach, of when the civil rights was kicking off, one of the places of conflict was lunch counters, was the practices and politics of eating together, or who couldn't eat together. It has always been this way. Last slide. The book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the last of the major prophets, writes at a time when the people of Israel go into exile. They lose their homeland. They lose their place of worship, the temple. They are lost in a foreign land. They can't eat the foods they would normally eat. They can't sacrifice the way they would normally sacrifice. The presence of God seems to be absent. And so in this space, the prophet speaks. And prophets always bring this word about the way the world really is, the consequences of the way that we have been living, and then the hope that God has another word after even this. And so in Ezekiel 47, the prophet gives this vision of restoration of what happens when the people get to come home finally and the temple's rebuilt and sacrifices start again and the prophet says it like this says that he's standing at the temple and there's this little trickle of water that starts to run out from under the altar and hears a voice and says like go follow the water as it runs it's this little puddle and follows it out and stretches out so far and the water starts coming up a little bit more and, and over time he keeps moving out further and further from the temple east. The water flows east. And all of a sudden it's up here and then it's up here and then he's swimming and then it's like a river. It says this. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is the same language that the book of Revelation will pick up at the end of our, of our scriptures. That there is a river that flows through the holy city and on each side of the river is trees for the healing of the nations and there is enough food present for all in this place there is no need because god is now with the people god sets the table god is on offer in the meal now what we're going to do next so we're going to pray we're going to sing a song We're going to move through offering, benediction, and then we're going to go eat together. All are invited. And you're going to walk across this spread. Two lines. You should go through both lines. And you will encounter the generosity of God in spoonfuls of plenty. The kindness of friends and family you will receive. And this potluck is like this communion table, is like your table at home. And when you leave, you are going to walk by people who are hungry. Folks who look just like you and me who don't have enough. And you will feel a pain inside that the world is not quite right. And you will remember that central line from the Lord's prayer, as in heaven, so also on earth. And then you will remember the next line, give us today the bread that we need. And you will realize that it all belongs to God. That there is no realm of this reality that is off limits to the sacred. It is just our awareness that is dull. So let us wake up and let us feast. Will you pray with me? We are hungry, God. And thirsty, And we have been starving ourselves and then consuming at rates that are unimaginable and often still empty. So, make us aware of your presence at the table, of your provision of the table. Forgive us for all of the broken ways that we eat all of the people who are not at home at our tables. Forgive us our fractured culture and may we eat ourselves back to wholeness. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.